house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. The person I'm looking for is quite well known. He's killed 14 people that we know of. You ever think he might come after you? Oh, at least 30 seconds of every day. Hello? Is this Clarice? Ah, hello, Clarice. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that never loved a guy who wasn't Richard Gere as much as they love Richard Gere. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, senior writer for Decider.com, Joe Reed. I am here, as always, with my co-host, entertainment writer Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hello, Joe Reed. Oh, God. (laughs) We're starting with that already. I should have expected that. That's actually, that's my bad. I should have really expected that. I'm just that really grateful for the setup of that, too. I was like, I'm, I'm going to go for this. I can do this. It was either that or okie dokie, which t- this movie okie turns dokie. into a catchphrase that, like, I didn't realize was a thing. Like, this movie really, really is enamored with Hannibal Lecter saying okie dokie. Yeah, but, like, it wants him to be cute at the same time. Like, it. I'm sure we'll get like, into how self-aware this movie is. Yeah. And uh, how that's part of its problem. But we're putting the cart before the horse. We're putting uh, this the week, we the are in a very seasonally appropriate mood, I would say. We wanted to, with Halloween upon us... Happy Halloween! Out, look, happy Halloween, everybody. As, as this posts, Halloween is tomorrow. Who knows when you're listening to this? Halloween listen, is we're tomorrow not tell you. We're not going to tell you when to listen. You might be listening to this weeks after the fact. Just the fact that you're listening is good enough for us. So thank you. Um, but Halloween is great. With Halloween upon us... We set out looking for a scary movie that also fit the Oscar bait mold, which, as you might imagine, is easier said than done, considering Oscar's historical aversion to horror. Of course, the one movie that always gets brought up as the exception to this tendency was the one that led us to our selection. When The Silence of the Lambs won Best Picture in 1991, it opened the doors of possibilities for a lot of artful, popular horror movies. And it also, very specifically, opened the door for its sequel, the 2001 Ridley Scott-directed Hannibal. Chris, we don't usually think of Hannibal as failed Oscar bait, at least not the first thing we think about when we think about Hannibal. Do you think we're stretching too far to include a scary movie for the holiday? I mean, I think if you say that we're stretching on this movie, you have to say we're stretching on about like half of our movies. Like, I think this would be comparable to when we did Ask the Dust, where it's like people are trying to include it for all these various different reasons like this movie we have the cast we have the legacy of silence of the lambs we have ridley scott right after he um made gladiator um this feels like a movie that had oscar buzz during its development exactly the second that people got their eye on it and the movie opened it's like well that's not happening right exactly because the movie's gross and bad This is probably the most, I think of all the movies that we've talked about on this podcast, this is probably the movie that most of our listeners will have already seen before we talked about it. But even still, 
And maybe it's more fun this way. I want to have you do a 60-second plot rundown just to, you know, set the table. What are we talking about? What happens in this sequel to The Silence of the Lambs? And then we can move on from there. I, I think that that's a good way to attack this movie. Oh, wait, I got to have a timer. Yeah. Shit. I'm so unprepared. You guys, it's early is all I can say about that. It's early one... and we watched this movie. I know. Also true. All right. I have one minute ready when you are. I'm ready. And go. Okay. So Hannibal revisits Clary Starling and Dr. Leffler. Dr. Lecter roughly a decade after his escape in Silence of the Lambs. Uh, Starling is recently shamed for a drug bust gone wrong, and Lecter is, like, semi-living out in the open in, like, some type of art history position in Italy. Um, Lecter's alias is kind of willfully given up. Like, he likes to play cat and mouse with, like, the people he knows are watching, like, the FBI, um, because he basically spends his time in Italy, like, buying hand creams and artisanal paper. Um, 30 seconds. And then Hot on His Trail is his, one of his living victims, Mason Verger, who, um, he's like an evil Richie Rich, and Lecter once convinced him to slice off his face and feed it to his dogs because he is what? Sickening. Um, Verger will never be glamour because he's also a child <laughs> rapist. Um, and Verger uses Starling to lure Lecter back to the open, which leads to even more gross stuff, including the presence of Le- Ray Liotta, and Ray Liotta eats his brains, and there's a lot more ma- morbid patriarchal bullshit. You almost made it. I there's almost a lot that it. happens in this movie. There's a lot that happens in this movie. You it's, notice it's who like... wasn't a whole lot of, uh, who wasn't in a whole lot of your 60 second plot description? Clary, Clary Starling. Starling. Which is a huge problem in this movie, and I think was a big reason why Jodie Foster, if not also Jonathan Demme and Ted Talley, chose to not participate in this movie. Well, Jodie Foster is on the record that the official reason, one of our favorites, like the movie we should do an episode of, even though it doesn't exist, she was trying to make Flora Plum happen. I love that Flora Plum is part of the narrative of this movie. Flora Plum is part of the narrative of actually probably a lot of movies. It's probably the reason why Jodie Foster didn't make a lot of movies. And I love every time it comes up in conversation because it keeps that movie alive in our hearts. And that's where it needs to be. I like the fact also that like this particular write-up that I saw was like she had just cast Claire Danes in Flora Plum. So like it was really, really about to happen. And yeah. I was like, oh, that and is it so never adorable. Happened. Uh, okay, but so the the development story of Hannibal is a very interesting one for if no in no small part because we know a lot about it. This was one of the most extensively covered film developments at the time it was so it was like this titanic i remember had been covered this extensively but like lord of the rings opened in 2001 and that was not covered nearly as extensively as the opening uh or the development of hannibal so we know and a lot of like shit happened a lot of people dropped out a lot of changes happened so we know a lot of what it is and it's a very interesting development tale i think from the from the moment that silence of the lambs happened and became so popular. The fact that its ending was so open-ended and led so much to, like, what's Hannibal Lecter going to do now that he's free? I think talk of a sequel probably started immediately, I would say. Yes, and I mean, it was always... That open-endedness was always part of the legacy. Thomas Harris was pretty open on the record of, like, wanting to eventually continue the story. Um, Well, and from Thomas Harris's perspective... 
Silence of the Lambs is already sort of a sequel. Silence of the yeah. Lambs is already the second Hannibal Lecter movie. So, like, from his perspective, why wouldn't you, you know, write another write another book? Especially because, like, there's all that money to be made. Mm-hmm. And the, so then you also have producer Dino De Laurentiis, who I feel like, much as, like, this is a Ridley Scott-directed film, this movie feels to me like a Dino De Laurentiis movie more than anything. I feel like Absolutely. his hand I feel like his hand is over this almost more than anybody else's. He produced Manhunter, the original movie with Hannibal Lecter, where Brian Cox plays Lecter. It was an adaptation of Thomas Harris's Red Dragon. And De Laurentiis was on the record as not being very happy with that one. And that is probably part of the reason why he declined to have anything to do with the production of The Silence of the Lambs, although he retained the rights to Lecter as a character. Mm -hmm. He sort of let um, the Jonathan Demme movie have that character without even asking for any money. And then when Silence of the Lambs became such a hit and became such a success, he really started kicking himself and then spent the next decade trying his hardest to get get in on that sweet Hannibal Lecter action, essentially, and trying to make Hannibal happen. And so Thomas Harris finally gets the novel written, and it's published in 1999. And the book, I remember being, like, pretty popular and pretty well-received by, like, the people who were excited to read it. But I think on sort of the higher critical levels, I think people realize that this is a pretty lurid book, a pretty kind of junky book, and... There's some stuff that's not in the movie, including a character that's uh, Mason Verger's sister, that's fairly offensive, even in a way that we could have said that we had the, like, social consciousness in 1999 to say, no, this is not okay. Um, Like, I think Hannibal itself is a pretty offensive movie, and they cut out a lot of the most offensive parts of Thomas Harris's book. The interesting thing about that, Chris, is Silence of the Lambs itself faced criticism from the uh, the gay movement at the time for having its lead, its villain, the Buffalo Bill character, be a a gay guy, you know, who wanted transgender reassignment surgery and all these things that we didn't really have a, a vocabulary to talk about back then but essentially like queered up its villain to make him scarier and there were protests at the time i remember and i remember jonathan demi saying at one point that that was a big part of the reason why he decided to make philadelphia his next movie as almost like an act of atonement mm-hmm. which is interesting because a lot of gay people really don't like philadelphia either. exactly but i think like i mean i've always thought that jonathan demi was a you know Operating from a place of of good and and generosity, yeah. and I've always appreciated that about him. I honestly don't think he set out to make the sounds of the lambs to have you know to queer up the villain in a way that that he recognized as being bad. And I think it's just a matter of like the things that you are tuned into and you are not tuned into. Yeah, um, and a lot of that is on the page of the book of Silence of the Lambs too. Well, this is the thing. I think Thomas Harris really sort of indulges in that kind of thing, and. In a way that I'm always willing to give Silence of the Lambs a pass for. I'm not usually as hair trigger about queer villains as other people are. I sometimes appreciate a good queer villain. But Look I don't at know the what the entire your thoughts... cinematic history of Disney, for example. Well, sure, we listen, should also mention the specific character we're talking about from the book of Hannibal is a um 
more like masculine lesbian who she is does steroids. She's like huge. Yeah, yeah, and is essentially a sexual object to more than one male character in the book, including very weirdly Barney. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. There's like a shower scene, I remember. It was something like that. It's Oh, I never read the book. The only thing that I knew was that her backstory was cuz they go into the the um uh what is her name? Margot? Yes. She's a character on the TV series and she's played by from Ginger Snaps. Is it Catherine Isabel? There is a lot of people on the Hannibal series. Yeah, Hannibal's fantastic. Like the TV series really did this by the time they got to the storyline from this movie, it was the third season and they were trying to fit. They tried to do both the Red Dragon story and the Hannibal story in the same season. And I think uh, the show suffered for that. But I agree. they did the Margot character better. They introduced her sooner. They The part of the book where she had been abused by Mason... In the book, it said that he had raped her and that she had been ostracized by her family because she was a lesbian. And in the show, it's a little bit differently. Mason sort of like psychologically terrorized her and she's still a lesbian, but there's less of a of a sense of punishment for that. In the book, she had been raped by Mason. She had been ostracized by her family. She wants... Mason's sort of keeping her on a string because he wants, he said he's, he can give her girlfriend a uh, sperm sample that they can like have an heir to the verger fortune. And ultimately she ends up killing Mason by the end of the book in a really graphic and I would say probably homophobic way. Right. So in the book, it's... she essentially, he has a pet eel, which is not in the movie. And she. Oh, I was like, talking sh- about the cattle prod, but yeah. Uh, with that. that. Well, that's part of it. That's part of it. Yeah. Um, but it's she shoves an eel down his throat. So back to the book. Sorry, we're sort of jumping around the timeline here. So Thomas Harris uh, publishes the book. Dino De Laurentiis seemingly really is like ready to go forward with it. Sends it off to Jonathan Demme, Ted Talley, who had uh, adapted the screenplay for Silence of the Lambs, won an Oscar, Jodie Foster, and Anthony Hopkins. All the major players get the script. Three of the four of them are like, no. (laughs) Jonathan Demme, I think, was the first one who was just like, I don't want to do this. I think he was fairly upfront about the fact that like the book was too lurid for him, and he didn't like the direction that it was going in, and... It appeals to none of his sensibilities in the way that, like, Silence of the Lambs on the page, the book of it, um, and to a certain degree, the screenplay doesn't necessarily get into a lot of the patriarchal things that Clary Starling faces, but that's kind of Jonathan Demme's take. You could conceivably do that with Hannibal, and I think someone with smarter sensibility or it's so a filmmaker who's more attuned to that. I don't want to say Ridley Scott's not smart because he's very good at what he does, but that's not the type of story he's usually going to tell unless you have And Ridley some... Scott Ridley Scott never seems to have he's a one of those really great directors who never really seems to have that strong of a through line POV in terms mm-hmm. of like do you know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. I can't really. Yeah, like... he doesn't really make movies that have a take on their material. He just yeah kind of does things efficiently and at best makes them like really thrilling. Um, but he's not like he doesn't gloss onto something in the narrative and then make yeah. a broader movie about that. 
right. the way that I think Silence of the Lambs does and Jonathan Demi kind of that's part of why that movie lasts and we connect to it even if we don't realize it is that the sexism that Clary Starling has to face is all in the same system of somebody like Hannibal Lecter who is yeah. eating people and luring and the, over her. Right. And the sticking point, it seemed to uh, the reason why a lot of the people who didn't sign on for Hannibal didn't sign on was the treatment of the Starling character and the fact that she and Lecter end up together by the end of the book, which is something that the movie changed. But the movie still presents Starling and Lecter as this sort of, like, star-crossed, psychosexual, like, drawn-to-each-other kind of pair. And really, like, that was subtext in The Silence of the Lambs, especially from him to her. You definitely got the sense that he was attracted to her. Right, and she has to maneuver around it. Which I think is somewhat there in Julianne Moore's performance in this, but I don't think the movie... The movie's more well, the interested movie's, in Lecter being out. obsessed with her. And yes, right. it the does movie, sell her out. The movie sells her out in a lot of ways, and that's one of them, where she, you're right, she is playing it much more ambiguous, but I think the rest of the movie is intent on making that subtext text. And also, like you mentioned, the sexism of The Silence of the Lambs, and that's there like from the, from the very beginning. But like in Hannibal, it mostly presents itself through this Ray Liotta character who was like overtly sexually harassing towards her, like propositioning her talking about, you know, he can find like country fried pussy anywhere. Like there's, he's just awful and gross in a way that to me is artless. And to me is doing what a lot of the movie is doing, which is making its character, its victims, all the victims of, of Lecter in this movie are made to be so, reprehensible that the audience can root for them to get killed and it's a movie that really wants you to cheer along with your revulsion that like you know it's so gross what Hannibal is doing to you know Ray Liotta but like oh my god it's so fucking cool like this movie really wants you to hit that fucking cool button on your little uh, test screening dial or whatever and I think everything that Liotta does to Julianne Moore's version of Clarice is all in service of making sure that we are satisfied when Lecter does to him what he does in that final scene. And you see that with the Italian inspector played by Giancarlo Giannini, who is mostly just, you know, he's a police inspector, but he's greedy. He wants the $3 million reward that Verger has put up for the capture of Lecter. But they also throw in that little scene where like he lets that guy bleed out in the palazzo so that he can accomplish this. And it's like, oh, he's now responsible for somebody's death. He now, We can feel good about him getting killed. And Mason Verger the same way, where it's like, oh, he was horribly disfigured, and this is, you know, one of Lecter's most ostentatious, you know, actions. Um, but he's also a child molester, so we don't have to feel bad about him either. And that all, to me, feels And he's grosser. also essentially willing to sacrifice Clary Starling to right. potentially, like, die or whatever. And that all, to me, felt very heavy-handed and very much like the audience was not trusting me to sit with my complicated emotions in a way that Sounds of the Lambs does. Sounds of the Lambs knows we're going to be fascinated with Lecter. Sounds of the Lambs itself is fascinated with Lecter. Well, and it's it's... I think it's kind of just at the conception of what Hannibal is, even the book of it, because it's the approach to all of it is so different. And this is so like obviously gross and morbid in ways that 
you know, Silence of the Lambs is a little bit more removed and clinical, um, but we can still get invested in a human level. This one is so macabre. And I think yeah. the intention here, it's obviously written by Thomas Harris after Hannibal Lecter has exploded. And it's all of the things that we are like fascinated and drawn to in it's Hannibal Lecter yeah. and like writing it like taking this bold stroke of the things that are suggested actually being shown, like the excessive gore in this, like to the point where it's like you hear the lore of Hannibal Lecter, like when he bites the woman's face and this movie shows us that scene. Yeah. For no good reason. For no good reason. And since you brought up the show, I would argue that the show does that as well but yes. does it so much better in that it's like, it wants to indulge our like the things that make silence of the lamp scary because it's in our imagination. It wants to actually show us those things. And the show also indulges that idea that we want to, because by the time the, the show happened, Hannibal had fully become the protagonist of this series, right? Where like Hannibal is the serial killer who we all, darkly root for and the show knew this and so the show then had to play that hand and i think played it very well where the show knows that on some level we want to see lector get away with all this and lector do all of this and so the show then tested the audience and said okay you want to do that how far you know will you allow us to take it and I don't know. I mean, we could. I could talk in about a way that, that it's more okay. kind of smartly attuned to what it is that draws us to this kind of body horror in the first place. Whereas yeah. Hannibal the movie, Ridley Scott's just kind of making spectacle out of like, I don't know. Like you yeah. see all of the like <laughs> when Hannibal Lecter is essentially a docent talking about all of this like violent historic art and like the movie the movie's kind of gorgeous to look at so it's like you see ridley scott kind of doing this i don't know classicist it's also i will say it's gorgeous to look at it also is the beneficiary because it was this highly anticipated sequel and the budget went through the roof it has the best on location shooting of a movie i've seen in a long time where it goes from like Florence and all these locations in Florence that look amazing to like they put a carousel in the middle of Union Station in Washington DC and like that whole scene for as much as that's you know frustrating from a narrative perspective um that looks gorgeous the fact that they shot the Verger estate uh at the Biltmore uh, house in Asheville North Carolina which I went down a full rabbit hole on Wikipedia that night to the point where I found out the the Biltmore House, which is owned by the Vanderbilt family, which is like the Anderson Cooper lineage Vanderbilt family. Also a Vanderbilt, fun fact, Timothy Oliphant of Chris's IMDb Game Nightmares fame. So I'm sorry, who? Already... I, I, I couldn't hear the things that you said. Maybe I blacked if... out. If you're already attracted to Timothy Oliphant, as I am, also know he's filthy, stinking rich on a family level. So there's also that. But I thought, I don't know, I thought the locations were a big part of why this movie looks amazing. Yeah, I... uh, 
I think also because you mentioned the budget, it was kind of astronomical, especially for a movie like this, where it's like you are not avoiding an R rating. And though, I mean, we should also mention this movie was huge at the time. I mean, it preceded some other huge box office grocers. So it's like we forget that when this movie opened, it was the third biggest opening of all time. And it was a February opening, so that was like an even bigger thing. Yeah, everybody went to see this thing opening weekend. It was hugely anticipated. I remember As when I said, it opened here, like you couldn't get a ticket opening weekend because every theater in the city had sold out the whole weekend. And so it was only a couple years removed from The Phantom Menace, which was another like continuation of a property that was beloved and it was hugely anticipated and everybody was sort of breathless about it. And I remember with The Phantom Menace, the first time I saw that, I was like, I loved it. I loved it. And I was like, and you do, you were doing that thing that I, or I was doing that thing that a lot of people were doing, which was sort of like talking yourself into having loved this movie that it was inconceivable to you that you couldn't have loved. And then the more you thought about it, the more you couldn't really defend a whole lot of of what was about it. (laughs) Hannibal was the first time to me that I had seen a sequel or a continuation or something where I was so in love with the product to begin with. And it was the one-two punch, actually, of Hannibal. And I think before this, but not too long before, was Blair Witch 2, Book of Shadows. Oh, God. And both of those movies, I remember instantly being like, no, I do not like this. I did not. I, I, I immediately was sort of, you know, coming into at least a sense of what I liked and what I didn't like critically. And I was like, no, I will not accept this. I will not accept <laughs> this just because I liked the originals so much. These, these are bad movies. And that holds up for me. I really, really hate Hannibal. I really hate almost everything about it. Meanwhile, this is <laughs> this movie is like the quintessential when I was younger movie that I was obsessed with that now I just cannot defend on any level because at the time I was I was very amped for this movie. You mentioned that it was so widely reported every step of this. I followed every single beat of it. This was like right at the rise of when I was obsessed with Julianne Moore. Yeah. Um, I think I even liked Gladiator at the time. At the time, um, there were a lot of little tidbits of the pro- of the the production process that I remember, like that now are just sort of part of the record. The fact that like everybody agreed that the David Mamet script, the uh, the initial David Mamet script for this movie, was horrible, and like nobody liked it, and they brought in Steve Zalian to essentially like rescue it. Even though I feel like like. The Ray Liotta character feels very David Mamet to me in his, you know, but maybe that's me just sort of like being stereotypical about Mamet. But, you know, I love that like that kind of thing is on the record. This, you know, terrible David Mamet script that had leaked to one of those like, remember there were screenplay sites? Oh, yeah. That like made their, that was how they made their bones was just sort of like they got leaked screenplays and reviewed them and sometimes put them up. And I remember reading those like, fake drafts of the Scream 2 script. Oh, wow. That they, like, I don't intentionally put out fakes to, like, not Who? reveal the killers. That's smart. Who got killed in that one, do you remember? I don't remember. I imagine with the fake scripts, they must have always been, like, you know, because the thing with the Scream movies, very quickly, I know I'm taking us off course, the thing with the Scream movies is every one of them tried to make you think that one of the principals was going to get killed 
or one of the principals was going to turn out to be the killer. Yeah. And which was one because of the we always that thought that it was going to be Courtney Cox at some point. Well, Courtney Cox gets teased as being the killer hugely in both the first one and the second one. We're like, she emerges, and and then the audience is essentially asked to be like her, and then of <laughs> course it's not her. I always thought, and then the third one makes you think it's Sydney for a second there. The third one makes me so mad because the third one, this is my Scream Three thing that like if you know me, you've heard me go on the spiel. Scream Three spends the entirety of it being like it's the it's. Uh, it's a trilogy. Anything can happen at the thir- in the third installment of the trilogy because it's, you know, it's the end. And the whole thing is like, anything can happen. Nothing is safe. All your expectations will be undone. And I kept being like, oh, it's going to be big. And I and thought it's for the sure, one that plays it the safest. It's the one that plays it the safest. It's fucking Scott Foley, who we've never heard from before in this entire thing. It's so stupid. Yeah. And my whole thing with the Scream trilogy is, at some point, I thought the killer should have turned out to be David Arquette. That David Arquette, after the first one, was driven so mad by his sister getting killed that he had to take it out on Sidney Prescott and Gail and and everybody else. I think that's a wild claim. Dewey is an idiot. Dewey can't kill people. (laughs) But that would have been the gag of the season, right? You would find out that he was, you know, he was slow playing these people the entire time. Anyway. Anyway. Let's get back to Flora Plum. (laughs) Yes. Anyway. Back to the Flora Plum podcast. Um, <laughs> if that movie ever gets made, we are bit. doing a podcast about Flora Plum. Oh my God, I feel like we need to write the Flora Plum like production book or whatever. Um, we should talk a little bit about like the Oscar buildup because we mentioned that it was like once the movie was seen and we knew that it went to like the gory leaps that the book did, and just it lurid, was dead. and just nasty yes anyway yes but i mean what are some of the other things that you think made it be kind of in that conversation i think perhaps the largest aside from the legacy of silence of the lambs is ridley scott because when gladiator happened it was like ridley scott is back yeah he is forever going to be in these type of conversations it's funny the last time we did a ridley scott movie when we did 1492 he was coming off of at the Another time comeback. his biggest Oscar success, which had been Thelma and Louise, and then the rest of the '90s happened, and it's not like it was a disaster for him, but like it definitely was not his career high. You're right. Then all of a it sudden, it took him uh, out of the conversation to the point that like he could have another comeback again because he's really not in the conversation now. Yeah. So Gladiator. At the point that um, Hannibal hits theaters, Gladiator hasn't even won the Oscar yet. We're not even there yet. I think we're like right at the around that time. I think it's probably a couple weeks away. And but like, I don't know what Gladiator was pro- was pretty much definitely going to win by this point, right? Best director was certainly mm-hmm. up in the air, but I don't know if it was. I mean, I guess Crouching Tiger and had... Traffic were both were pretty big contenders. Yeah, I mean, like, that was probably one of the closest years we have in semi-recent memory. Um, Yeah, you're right. You also have the Julianne Moore factor of it all, which you have to think that some of this was at least on their mind, or at least they were in some way self-aware of the Oscar legacy of Silence of the Lambs, because basically And of Jodie Foster, specifically. Yes. um, Basically all the actresses that they... Yeah, read that list. ...approached... Um, let me open this list. Basically, all the actors that they pursued or approached to replace Jodie Foster were 
up-and-coming Oscar actresses or actresses who had already gotten their Oscar. So I have the list if you want me to read it. Read me the list. Kate Blanchett, who at this point had been nominated for, I think, probably just the one Oscar. Angelina Jolie, who had already won. Gillian Anderson, who had not been Oscar nominated, but who was like a couple-time Emmy winner. Hilary Swank, who had won an Oscar. Ashley Judd, who I think would have been actually a really interesting recast for for Clarice, and probably of all of these women would have been my choice. She'd be my choice, too. Helen Hunt, Oscar winner, and a hilariously bad choice if they had picked her. Like, of all of these women, and I'm not even a Helen Hunt hater, but, like, can you imagine Helen Hunt as Clary Starling? No. No. Like, no. no. And then Julianne Moore. And so I don't want to do what the movie does and give Julianne Moore a short shrift. So I think she's, she's really, she's overmatched in this movie in a way that doesn't speak to her talent level at all i think it's a it's a dead-end task asking her to step into this role not only because jodie foster had put her stamp on it so much but because the book just fucking deep sixes this character so severely yeah absolutely but to the oscar point though like she's one of those we've talked about these people before where it's like whatever they attach themselves to we already think about in terms of Oscar, because they're already in that upward trajectory, right? Like, she had multiple nominations at this point. We knew she was going to eventually win. This is right. before the roles kind of died out. She had been nominated for Boogie Nights in 1997, which I think everybody sort of re- recognizes her as, like... Well, no, because Gloria Stewart probably was runner-up. But, like, a strong third. A respectable third yeah. um, that year, let's, let's imagine. And then 1999, she gets that nomination for The End of the Affair, which I almost find more impressive because that's the kind of nomination that comes just from reputation for her as an actor and mm-hmm. esteem for her performance. Because it's not like The End of the Affair was showing up on the rest of that ballot. Like, that was a nomination for her specifically. Yeah. I remember defending that movie and kind of liking it, but I haven't seen I've it in a while. I've never seen it. I've never seen it. She's good in it. She's good in it. I mean... I should see it. I love her. I love Ray Fiennes. I like Neil Jordan, especially, like, when Neil Jordan was good. I... Okay. So, Julianne Moore is probably, gun to my head, my favorite actress, and I don't want to crap on my favorite actress. You don't like the performance. I think this is one of her... I mean, we've mentioned she doesn't really have the good material. I think it's one of her worst performances. Yeah, and I it can't kind of that. starts the string of Julianne Moore cop performances that like seem like she's kind of just getting a paycheck. It also kicked off 2001, one of her worst years as an actress, and I can say that only with the uh, with the the bomb that 2002 was one of her best years as an actress. <laughs> so like, it would turn around quickly. But 2001 starts with Hannibal. She does Evolution. That um, ill-advised comedy with it's Duchovny, right? Yes. Then World Traveler, one of her occasional indulgences for her husband Bart uh, Freundlich. That's the one with Billy Crudup. How you can take a movie with Julianne Moore and Billy Crudup and make it that boring is exactly why I can't deal with Bart Freundlich as a director. And then she ends the year with. Do you want to say it for me? Because I can't. I don't remember it- what it is. 
It's the shipping news. Oh, yeah. She ends the year playing a character named Wavy Prouse in the shipping news. Holy shit. Like, thank God Far From Heaven was around the corner because what a demoralizing year that was. You want to talk about a movie that sells Julianne Moore short? That movie. How much do you have to hate a character to name them Wavy? Wavy Prouse. Uh, I don't care how Newfoundlander you are. Wavy Prouse (laughs) is the tip of the Newfoundland iceberg. (laughs) Wow. Like, I've made the joke that it's like Annie Prue just throws, like, wooden blocks with letters at the wall. (laughs) And, like, that's how she names her characters. Like, just the way that they've, like, laid out on the floor. Oh, Um, boy. That's, that's like, a ring around the rosy of a joke. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Can I make the case for where I think this movie should have been Oscar nominated, but like they would probably never have gone there anyway because it's too much. Oh yeah, them. hit me. Yeah, best makeup. I mean, the Verger character certainly makes the case for it, right? We should probably talk this up because I don't think we've even mentioned his name yet. Mason Verger Get- is played by Gary Oldman famously who jockeyed for like above the title credit yes along with julianne moore and anthony hopkins and like you can i mean based on his stature the size of the role yeah i mean the politicking of it like take the gary oldman out of the gary oldman-ness of it and like fine whatever but they refuse to do it so he ends up taking his name off the movie completely off the movie entirely yeah doesn't do any press for the movie to the point where I remember the week that it came out, it's like, Hey, you guys know Gary Oldman's in this movie, right? These pieces coming out. Um, And I think that's to the betterment of the movie because the look of the character is that disturbing. I think I remember even at the time that critics weren't mentioning him because they thought that his identity was a surprise and they didn't want to like give it away. Yeah. Which is really interesting. You only see him in the one flashback scene. Again, a scene which really leans on sort of homophobic revulsion to make you more, like, repulsed by what's happening on screen. And by the way, what's happening on screen is a man cutting his face off and feeding it to his dog. And Ridley Scott and Thomas Harris and Dino De Laurentiis were like, you know what? Let's uh, Thomas Harris didn't direct this. Like I shouldn't place this on him, but he wrote the shit. But like the fact that like they're like, no, it's not revolting enough. We also have to make it look like Gary Oldman's trying to seduce Hannibal Lecter, which is like it's filmed in that sort of Oliver Stone JFK way. Remember the the gay yeah. scenes in JFK where it's like which are all fast like blurry, fast blurry, canted angles. Everything is like you're so off your your equilibrium because it's all so. You know, the only thing that you can clearly see is Anthony Hopkins face. And then so you mentioned the line. I want to I want to mention it again because I want to make it a ringtone or perhaps I don't know people don't do ringtones (laughs) anymore. But Anthony Hopkins (laughs) saying, would you like like a popper? Yeah, he tries to give him poppers or he does. Would you like a popper? Would you like a popper? Jalapeno poppers, yes! And me, by the way, at the time, I'm 20 years old, but I'm a very young 20. And I had no... I was also deeply in the closet. I had no idea what poppers were. So I'm thinking this is this sort of, like, very cutting-edge, like, deeply dangerous, like, poppers must be the worst thing ever. And, like, it's a drug that 
for as, you know, sort of comparably mild as it is, the actual taking of it is very sort of elaborate, right? Where you like crack the thing and you put it under your nose and you whatever. And it looks like you're doing something far more worse than what you're doing. And so the visual of it, com- you know, complete with the way it was filmed was very, very like well, shaking to the core for me. Well, and also it's like, if you're not paying enough attention, you don't notice that Mason Verger is already high on a bunch of different drugs and wasted drunk. Yeah, the movie kind of like skips around the idea that he had also been like drugged with PCP and whatever and whatever else yeah. Lecter had and that he put was a drug addict to make him, you know, compliant. The movie also sort of and the book goes even farther because the book goes farther down the road of Hannibal Lecter as being able to sort of hypnotize people and convince them to do things or convince them that things are happening. The end of the book, uh, Lecter and Starling get together in part because Lecter convinces Clarice that he has reanimated the bones of her dead father. Listeners, if you have not read the book, even you think Joe is joking, he is not. This happens in the book. Like he shows her a skeleton and she's like high because he's also drugging her, but he's also hypnotizing her. And she like in her imaginations, the bones reanimate of her father and she's able to like finally say goodbye to him. And this is part of the reason why they have a romance. It's insane. So again, incredibly intelligent and capable FBI agent Clary Starling not only gets hypnotized by Hannibal Lecter, but to the point where she imagines that she's seeing her dead father's bones. And so from like paternalism angles alone, that whole scene grosses me out so much other than the fact that like, it's so preposterous and dumb and like, I know they didn't do it in the movie for a reason, but even still, like, that spirit kind of suffuses the rest of the movie. We're like, right, the big the climactic whole action. Of it all. The big climactic action is that Lecter chooses to chop his own hand off rather than chop off her hand. And, like, what are the actual actions that Clary Starling does in this movie beyond the fact that, like, she goes to the Verger estate? breaking you know protocol because she's been suspended but like the entire middle act of the movie the whole act taking place in florence with with uh, giancarlo giannini trying to capture lector clarice is just on the phone with him being like you really shouldn't do this man you're gonna get killed and like that's the entirety of what she's doing yeah beyond like being in her little like basement office fending off ray liotta's bad behavior and it's i I will say that final scene in the kitchen is good and does what I want the movie to do in that what she is doing and I think the way she responds to Hannibal Lecter does kind of combat his like patriarchal obsession ownership over her while and that she keeps still... trying to yeah hit him like it's and, the and... only time in the movie that that feels like you can feel that tension between her having her own agency and She's definitely him, not like, surrendering to him. Like No, and yeah. I that scene I think is great. I think it was smart that they put that in like a huge part of the marketing for the movie because it's like the time that it yeah. finally clicks. Um I don't know. Back to the makeup point. Yes, sorry. Like, yes. No, of course we got derailed when we bring up Mason Verger and Gary Oldman. Who knew? Um yeah. 
so Mason Verger has sliced up his own face and like this you would not necessarily know I think it sounds like Gary Oldman even yes, though he's doing a pretty heavy dialect because the, the Gary Oldman American accent yeah yes um, though I mean maybe if you don't know going in I definitely knew going in um, you may not notice it because the face is so like yeah. hard to look at it yeah. He has no eyelids, he has no lips, and then they're scarring all over it. And it's, I mean... And the one eye is, like, damaged and sort of, like, is halfway looking, you know, is halfway yeah. out of the... It's it's a lot. And he's kind of got, like, the Dracula wig. This is, like, his, this is <laughs> well, like his old this, like, age Dracula. He's got this, like, long gray ponytail. Yeah. yeah. After a long night with a lot of vampire wine. Um... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah. I don't know. I think. Oh, we haven't mentioned who plays his like manservant. Ah, uh, Jelko Ivanic. Jelko Ivanic. Um, um, the guy Cordell. who plays that character in in the TV series is the guy who played um the 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 king in yellow in uh, the first season of True Detective. Who plays the oh yeah whatever the scarred up guy. Anyway, to a certain extent, Jelko Ivanic is kind of an amalgam of Margot from the book a little bit in this movie. Yes. Um, so there's that. But I don't know. I think the makeup branch of the Academy is fine with like horror makeup for the most part. I mean, we mentioned Bram Stoker's Dracula, which it was, I believe, I forget. I love that movie. I know that I'm in trouble here. I No, it won. It won makeup. Um, Can we also mention another horror movie that won best makeup? was The Wolfman, which yeah. uh, occasioned my favorite Kate Blanchett Oscar moment of all time, where she's presenting the character and they cut back to her and she just goes, that's gross. <laughs> well, but no, that's exactly what I'm talking about here is The Wolfman is gross in PG-13 sense. I think yes. Bram Stoker's Dracula is the outlier that when you have horror makeup... It's got to be artful. It's got to either be artful or sanitized or funny. Because you think of something like Men in Black, it's funny. Yeah. Um, even though it's gross. But, yeah. like, this is, re- they do a really good job. Like, it's the type of thing they would normally go for. It's like a full body makeup. Yeah. But because it's so terrifying, and because it's in the context that this movie has, the movie's gross. And the, the Oscars that year go were it. going for something very different, where they nominated yes. Moulin Rouge, which is the, they don't do this often enough, but the Moulin Rouge nomination is just like, you made everybody look good. Like you didn't well, make anybody. Well, there's a lot of hair pieces in Moulin yes. Rouge that are very convincing. Yeah, um, I think it's a great nomination. But I'm just saying that like they don't often do the makeup nomination for non-garish things, and I kind of yeah. like that. Um, a Beautiful Mind is nominated because the requisite old old age, old age makeup. makeup. It's got to be one every year that's just for old age. There's and then something the winner... this year that I'm like, it's old age makeup. It has a shot of being nominated, and I forget off the top of my head. But there's something that I'm like, it's going to be at least shortlisted for makeup. Oh, please remember age, and so. tweet it out once this episode goes up. I will. I'm sure you will. By I'll now. go back and look. And then the winner, which yeah. is sort of a grab bag of everything, is The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, where it's just like, that's most makeup, but like, in a way that like you can't fuck with it. Like, there's But also, there's a like, lot the gross makeup on. of it is still like PG 13 gross. Like, orcs, yeah, orcs gross. I don't know. A lot of that was, yeah, you're right in that it's, it's otherworldly makeup, right? Where like the orcs and whatever. Although, like, I don't know. I think there's a lot in that movie that's really impressive. But it's certainly. 
Hannibal seems like it was worthy of inclusion in this conversation. I would have put it in over a beautiful mind at the very least. They're a branch that I like while they do stuff like Moulin Rouge that it's like, yes, of course, that's great. There's a lot of great work there. They're a branch that I think could stand to have some more guts. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Guts your picks. Make yes. it up the hair sign branch, please. Is there anything else we wanted to talk about with regard to Hannibal? It did get nominated for three MTV Movie Awards, I noticed, including Best Film, which is interesting because by the time those MTV Movie Award nominations had been made, I believe that was back when they were doing them in, like, June, Mm -hmm. um, the movie had already opened and been subject to not... I mean, it did make a lot of money, but... um, And I guess the MTV Movie Awards are the least beholden to critical consensus of all the of all the awards bodies, if we can even refer to him or refer to those awards in that way. But like, I don't know. It is nominated also for, so nominated for best movie 2001. Do you know what wins best movie? Um, I have the page open, so go ahead and just say it so that I don't spoil it. Ridley Scott's other movie. It's gladiator. Gladiator. Elizabeth Taylor should have presented at the MTV movie awards. Yes, that's few people realize that. God, if they were thinking, they would have had her come out and do it again because it would have only been a few months removed from that Golden Globes. So it has like the best movies of 2000 because it straddles the year. So it's Gladiator, Aaron Brockovich, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Hannibal, and then the first X-Men movie, which is like, hey, kids, this is that movie that you love. I love that Ridley Scott is the Steven Soderbergh of the MTV Movie Awards. Yeah. <laughs> That he gets nominated twice and wins over himself. That's very true. Anthony Hopkins loses Best Villain to Jim Carrey in How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Other nominees that year in that category, Joaquin Phoenix for Gladiator, Kevin Bacon for Hollow Man, and, listen up, queers, Vincent D'Onofrio in The Cell. Yeah! Yeah, that's a cool nomination for the MTV uh, the Movie Cell Awards. The Cell had I have a to say. lot of nominations, including Best Actress for or Best Female Performance for Jennifer Lopez. Excellent. Hannibal also gets nominated somewhat grossly in this the is be- gross. in the best category. It's the one category that that justifies the continued existence of the MTV Movie Awards, which is Best Kiss. This Save is the so last gross dance. that Hannibal is nominated for this. It's so gross that Hannibal is nominated for this. It's such a non-consensual kiss, and. Like it's, if you if the category was best scene that has a kiss because it happens in that kitchen scene, but like you're right, it's non consensual, and it's it's, and it's emblematic of everything. Amazing, it's emblematic of everything that is bad about Hannibal, and that it prizes Hannibal as a sort of cool macabre character over anything that has to do with Clary Starling and her agency. Yeah. Other nominees, though, in that category that year. The winner was Save the Last Dance, Julia Stiles, Sean Patrick Thomas. That was a hugely popular movie with young people. Cast Away, Tom Hanks and Helen Hunt, which was that sort of like long-awaited, at the end, fine. Scary Movie, which I think was the the the, uh, Anna Faris kiss where the guy like then like ejaculates all over her or something. It's one of those, like it was a comedy kiss, but it was like fucking gross. And then bounce with Ben Affleck and Gwyneth Paltrow, which I find hilarious. Which we definitely should talk about. At some we point. should. We fully should. But yeah, so those were the three categories. Three pretty interesting categories, actually, that uh, that Hannibal was nominated in for the MTV Movie Awards. Did you want to talk about the Golden Satellites? 
Uh, just to mention that because the Golden Satellites are always fascinating and hilarious to me, uh, it did have a nomination for Best Original Score. For Hans Zimmer. Yeah. Which actually, I mean, I think the score is kind of interesting and good in the movie. It doesn't sound like necessarily a typical Hans Zimmer score. I mean, yes, but it borrows so significantly from the score to the original. Like, the Howard Shore score from The Silence of the Lambs does keep, like, cropping up in there in a way that, like, I remember that, I think it was Thomas Newman, right, for Skyfall, um, sort of got dinged for the fact that, like, he was incorporating the Bond theme in his rather cool and good, you know, original score for Skyfall. But I remember that that was a big reason why it couldn't win um, and maybe couldn't even be nominated was because it borrowed so much from the Bond theme. And that's sort of what I feel like. And, you know, few few bigger Hans Zimmer fans than this guy right here. I uh, I am fully trash in how much I do. You love the brominess of it all? I love the brominess of it all. I think the Inception score is one of the best scores of this century. But I I wasn't that enamored of the Hannibal score. I get it. I mean, but... I think it's interesting. I think I didn't get necessarily the like ripoffness of the Silence of the Lamp score. It does kind of feel spiritually attuned to that score in the way that you wish the rest of the movie was spiritually attuned to Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't know. We should kind of talk a little bit about how if this would have had any kind of like oscar holdout especially when this movie made as much money as it did because it was huge um black hawk down being another ridley scott movie even though we were coming off two steven soderbergh movies with yeah, like he the really same was release very productive gap. three movies like, in the span of i want to say like 18 months or something but i mean you have black hawk down being <clears throat> the ridley scott movie that kind of sweeps up a lot of below the line mentions and nominations and gets the lone director nominee nomination for ridley scott in 2001 that was the year that both black hawk down and mulholland drive show up as best director nominees and it's really easy to push hannibal out of any type of consideration if you're at least looking at continuing to reward ridley scott Mm -hmm. when you have something like black hawk down it's easy to shove out you know, the less well-received movie. I mean, and Ridley Scott had already sort of been out of the conversation anyway. Black Hawk Down doesn't open until the very end of the year. And by that point, like Hannibal, even like Hannibal's great like box office run was basically forgotten. Hannibal, you're right. Right, but what I'm saying is that it makes it a lot easier for Hannibal to not get noticed for things like score, Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. No, you're totally right. Yeah. All those scot-free dollars going into uh, into Black Hawk Down. So what else do we have before we venture into IMDb game territory? Um, I will I really, also say... I really, really, really hate this movie. I just want to say that one more time. <laughs> you can really, really hate this movie. I, I even still... hate the beginning. Can we talk about the beginning for like one half a second? About the... The opening like bust... It's that horrible. happens at the at the beginning of this movie, which sort of situates Clarice Starling as like an FBI agent and explains why she's so in disfavor with her with her superiors, which I think is meant to sort of put her back into a similar career situation as she was in the first, which is yeah. she needs to like go off the grid in order to make something happen. But what it does 
also is it's such an incongruity for me with like this drug bust at the beginning with this sort of like crime lord, you know, fabulous, awful uh, crime lord with needles in her hair and um, a baby strapped to her chest and like an Uzi in one hand. But it's so very much a type of one type of FBI movie. And the fact that the rest of the movie is so even more like gothic than than Silence of the Lambs was. It's such a weird fit. And it reminded me that like the X-Files movie did the same thing where the opening of that movie, even though that movie at least ties it into the plot a little bit. But there's like an Oklahoma City bombing type incident at the beginning of the X-Files movie, or at least a perspective uh, incident. And it reminded me actually of that X-Files episode of The Simpsons, where they're like chasing down aliens in Springfield, and someone goes into their office, Mulder and Scully are characters on this episode, and goes like, "There's there's a load of guns coming into the harbor tonight, and we gotta get to this. And Mulder just goes, I hardly think that's the type of thing that the FBI should be concerned with. <laughs> and that sort of reminded me of this is just sort of like we don't we don't want to see the FBI doing the like actual FBI drug bust gun bust stuff. Like we're in this because we're in that weird FBI realm of like serial killers and the macabre and all this stuff. Yeah, and- not drug bust. It's also like a really upsetting sequence, especially to it's like a prime example of you see this police bust where all of the criminals that get like gunned down brutally are the only black people in this movie with the exception yeah. of Barney. Yeah. And Barney. It's just horrible. Like it's awful to watch. I was very thankful that Barney didn't get punished for his sort of venal sin of you know, selling, selling off, off. Lecter memorabilia. No, oh. like Barney's the most likable person for it almost. It's like he gets $200,000 at the beginning of the movie to sell Hannibal Lecter's like iconic mask. And it's like, okay. hey, nice work if you can get it. That's another pet peeve of mine, though. The fact that like the fact that he gets such a price for the mask and that Verger is so incredibly like in awe of the mask. First of all, Nobody knows what that mask is unless you've seen a little movie called The Silence of the Lambs. Yes. <laughs> like, that's one of those things that annoys me. And it, But it's part and parcel of Hannibal getting high on its own stash, essentially, where it's just like yeah. it's so in love with the Hannibal Lecter that exists in American pop culture. To the point that, that we see Mason Verger wearing the mask later. Like, I can understand, like, he probably, you know, that mask was on television because the mask was... was Therefore, his meeting with Senator Martin in the first one. So, like, I could see maybe, but, like, it doesn't become a piece of iconography in that world. Like, it it becomes a piece of iconography in our world. And yeah. I guess on some level, I if it was a different director, I could be like, oh, like, the director is playing with our sense of hero worship for... Hannibal Lecter, but I don't think that's what Scott's doing at all. I think it's just no. He this, doesn't think about things like that. The novel and the script, and and again, Dino De Laurentiis, who I really do think is the authorial voice on this, are really just sort of rolling around like wild boars in in a pigsty, which we also didn't mention. But also, if you're gonna like have a master plan over the span of several decades to kill someone, training a horde of giant boars to 
attack human screams on site and chew their faces off is pretty interesting. I'll there's say. um, uh, you know, there's easier ways that that could be done. <laughs> you know, but in, but few more artful. I will say, yeah. I was really, I was fascinated by that plot. Anyway, super gross. I hate this movie. Yeah. I, we talked a lot about the production buildup. I will say that, like, my fondest memory of this movie is Julianne Moore's piece of it. Because she... Even though you don't think she's good. Even though I don't think she's good. Because, like, I distinctly remember being, like, I was rooting for her to be the one that they chose. And, like, when she got it, being like, woo! And, like, seeing her Entertainment Weekly cover where it's, like, a green background... She had such good Entertainment Weekly photo shoots. Yeah. My fa- my lock screen on my phone is one of her images from the her Far From Heaven EW shoot. Wow. You got to show me that next time I see you. Okay. Um, I also love that in true This Had Oscar Buzz style, we talk about the opening scene at the very end of the podcast. Like, <laughs> one of these days, guys, we will have a temporal lineup that makes sense. Other uh, Until then... We're a meandering conversation. We're a meandering That's how we like to keep it here. Yes. Uh, do we want to do IMDb game? Yeah, let's get into it. All right. So the IMDb game is a game we play every week on this head Oscar buzz. We go on the old IMDb. We pull up an actor or actress and we quiz each other on which four movies show up in their known for section. The four movies that are at the top of their list that IMDb thinks are the four most prominent movies in their career. IMDb is an algorithm that is on crack a lot of times. Sorry, on poppers. Mason, would you like a popper? They're, yeah. they're, so, <laughs> they're so very much on poppers that they will claw their own face off to put weird movies in in actors known for. So that's what or makes it we'll fun and interesting. we'll claw their face off for them. We're the dog right. that eats their torn face. Yes. This is getting grosser and grosser. This is getting gross. Let's get back to the rules. So if I, any of these roles are TV work or voice work, we will mention that after two incorrect guesses, you get the hint in the form of the year the movie is from. After any further incorrect guesses, we uh, that's your score, and we proceed throwing hints out willy-nilly because it's for fun. That's it? Yeah! Alright, who do you got for me? All right, Joseph, I went down the 2001 Oscar rabbit hole to pick your actor. We are talking about somebody who had their big kind of reveal, at least in the public consciousness, in 2001, starring in two Oscar movies, including winning Best Supporting Actor. I am giving you Mr. Jim Broadbent. Oh, Jim Broadbent, who won, Broadbents. won for Iris that year and sadly denied poor Ian McKellen, who at this point, I don't know, I hope he can win an Oscar because he's incredibly overdue for it. Can we say that it would not be so sad if Jim Broadbent had been nominated for the better performance in Moulin in Rouge? Moulin Rouge. Moulin Rouge is my first guess, by the way. Uh, Moulin Rouge, yes. Yes. Okay. Um... Is it one of the Harry Potters? You don't have to tell me which I can guess, but is it one of the Harry Potters? There are no Harry Potters. Okay. All right. Well, that's my first wrong guess. Um, Broadbent. Is it Iris? Is Iris one of them? No. Two mm. wrong guesses. All right. Give me years. All right. So we got 2010, 2011, and 2002. 
2011, 2002. Huh. Jimmy Broadbent, 2010, 2011. Jimmy bending the bras. <laughs> that sounds gross. I don't want to talk about that. Oh. Jeez. You can't do a little goof on someone's name anymore. <laughs> what a world. What 2010, a world we live in. 2011, 2002. 2002 would have been right after his Oscar. He's following it up with some fun old times. Um, Is it Snatch? It is not Snatch. I will give Damn you it. another hint. All three of these are Oscar nominees. Interesting. 2011 is an Oscar winner. Oh, 2002 has got to be Gangs of New York. Gangs of New York. I loved that performance. I thought he's really good in it. Um, what did you say about 2011? By the way, I only got one because I, I guessed wrong after I got the hints. Yeah. Um, but what are 2010 and 2011? 2010 is an Oscar nominee. 2011 is an Oscar winner. He's not in The Artist. No. Um, 2011. Fairly reviled. Oscar winner? Yes. Very reviled, I would actually say. To the point that we are not as happy about its Oscar. The Iron win. Lady. Yes, the Iron Lady. Is he the husband? Yes. I don't remember that at all. I okay. fully have could not finish the Iron Lady. It's so bad. It's um, bad. Um, okay, so 2010. Um, it's an Oscar nominee. The like. It was one of those cases where people couldn't decide if this performance was lead or supporting, and I think the like campaign was similarly indecisive, resulting in not a nomination for like the key thing people love about this movie. Oh, well, I was gonna go True True Grit, but then I'm away from it. Also, Jim Broadman is very much not in True Grit. Fairly 20- beloved writer director. So there was an acting performance that straddled the line between lead and supporting, and then because of that, didn't get nominated at all. But it was nominated elsewhere. It was nominated another in another acting category. Yeah. No. No. Interesting. Best picture. The f- not a best picture nominee. I will give it to you. It was one of the screenplay nominees. Perennial favorite in the screenwriting categories. Oh. I don't know. You got to give it to me. Another year. Oh, he's in another year. Gosh. So good in another year. I always forget that that was an Oscar nominee. You're right. Leslie Manville. Screenplay nominee. That was a very, very, very crowded Best Actress year. One of the best Best Actress categories in my lifetime, I would say. See, I think that that is definitely a supporting performance for me. And I think it's because Leslie Manville is doing a lot of like very manic things it's much more of a showy performance it's not the kind of performance that can be the lead right and the understated performances by ruth sheen and jim broadbent people were like hesitant to call them a lead because they're not showy but they are and she's better than every really good she's better than every supporting actress nominee that year yeah and i love love another year in the fire in the fighters so much but yeah all right that was tough well done you for you i sort of took a little long and winding road for this one so uh we mentioned david mamet did the first draft of the screenplay for hannibal and then basically had to 
leave because he was directing a movie himself, um, according to these accounts. They didn't specify what movie. According to the timeline, I imagine that the movie they're talking about was State and Maine. It could have been Heist, because Heist comes out in 2001, but State and Maine comes out at the end, I want to say, of 2000. So let's say it's that, because that's a much more fun movie to go into for IMDb game purposes. One of the stars of State and Maine. <coughs> one somewhat- of the many. Of the many, he was notorious. His character in that movie was sort of notorious, and it's real interesting. I might have to go back and watch State and Maine now after all this sort of. Every know. time that movie I see it mentioned, I'm like, I need to rewatch that movie. Exactly. Um, I feel like it may have some things to say about Hollywood today that we didn't before. Alec Baldwin is in that movie playing a very Uh-oh. problematic character, so that is who you are going to have to do for your IMDb game. All right. Alley Balds. Um, <laughs> it's complicated. Yes, correct. Uh, the Departed. Yes, correct. See, I want to say because he has that he has that strange cameo in um, Black Klansman, but like. It, Things that are that recent are never on there. Um, oh, uh, Mission Impossible. One of nope. the Mission Impossibles. None of the Mission Impossibles. Okay, so none of the Mission Impossibles. Um, I'm trying to think of his big role. Um, oh, Elizabethtown. He's good in Elizabethtown. He may be, but he is not on. That is not one of his IMDb ones. Okay, so Dang. two strikes. You get years. Your years are 1992 and 2003. It's 1992. I may have this year wrong. Is it The Shadow? No, I think The Shadow was like 94. I loved that movie as a kid. Okay, Okay. so you that's your third strike, so I'm just going to give you hints. One of these is a very, very, very well-known glorified cameo, and the other one is his only Oscar nomination. Oh, okay, so The Cooler... Yes. And I should have known this because you put me down the David Mamet rabbit hole. The glorified cameo is Glenn Glary Gunn Ross. Yes, exactly. That's a weird lineup. It is a weird lineup. That's why I wanted to do it, though. It's it's an interesting spread of his career and not a lot of the ones. I would have maybe guessed Malice. I would have maybe guessed, oh, you, I mean, 30 you know Rock. What one, oh, yeah, 30 Rock, duh. Um, you know what also isn't on there that I probably should have guessed is Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice doesn't show up for anybody, which is weird because Tim Burton everywhere else kind of does. Yes, Tim Burton is a very big favorite of the IMDb game. But you're right. And also, you never think of, like, Alec Baldwin is maybe the fifth or sixth person I think of when I think of Beetlejuice, right? Because you think of Michael Keaton, uh, Winona Ryder, Gina Davis, Catherine Catherine O'Hara. I even think of, like, Jeffrey Jones and Sylvia Sidney before I think of Alec Baldwin in that movie. It's very interesting. I think of the woman who has the bow in her hair that looks like Rooney Mara. I oh. always retweeted every Halloween. <laughs> you will see the retweet. She does look like Rooney point. Mara. Where they I'm should like, make a movie about that character. That's what Rooney I Mara. said. That I want to see like her story, and I want to see her played by Rooney Mara. Paranormal is that what they're calling your kind these days? Don't mind her. She's still upset because somebody dropped a house on her sister. Otho's unimpressed friend at the dinner table. <laughs> That's amazing. 
I'm obsessed with her. And Bob um, Goulet, that is a well-cast movie. God damn it, I love Beetlejuice. You know what? So we much rounded more than this Hannibal. episode out great because Happy Halloween. We always Happy Halloween, be everybody. about Beetlejuice at Halloween. Watch Beetlejuice for Halloween. You might not think of it because it's not necessarily scary. Although for little kids, scare your little kids with Beetlejuice, you guys. See if they get scared. Oh, my Hell God. Hell, yeah. That's like the Do quintessential it. movie when I was a kid that I was too scared to watch. Look it over it. still drawn to. It was Beetlejuice. Exactly. Um, oh, man. Show your Joseph, ending fun question. What piece of 2018 cinema would be your Halloween costume if you were going to dress up? Oh, wow. That's My answer may shock you. I would love to be Rachel Weiss as Ronit in Disobedience <laughs> and just be like <laughs> drowning in scarves. That's amazing. That's really good. Just like so many scarves. I just want to be like Claire Foy and First Man and just sort of like rattle off my uh, my B words. Your B syllables, your bunch of boys with bunch your of words. Bunch of boys. Bunch she really does boys. spit that letter. Bunch of boys. I'm really popping in this mic right now. I bet you it's going to be bunch horrible when I, when I add this. My joke God, has been lot. that it is exactly like Maya Rudolph's version of Beyonce when, Beyonce, when her Beyonce goes, oh, burr, that's what Claire Foy sounds like in that movie. Or like, to me. Uh, wait, are you watching Big Mouth? I just finished uh, Big Mouth. Yes. Because the way she pronounces bubble bath is also like exactly like that. <laughs> she goes, "I'm gonna take a bubble bath." Bubble bath. Um, <laughs> I also could just be like uh, Alex Wolf in Hereditary and just bang my head against every flat surface I find and just beat the shit out of myself. Once again, looping back really well, um, because as listeners probably already know, and I will hype again when we do our like rundown, um, I did, I went back through our old episodes so that our letterbox list has all of our IMDb game scores and yes. links to individual episodes. And in one of our episodes, we kind of went fairly into Tony Collette and the chances for Hereditary. Since it's Halloween, do you think there is any chance? At this point now, how has that movie changed? I think there's a lot less chance now than I had when we originally talked about it. It's a very, very busy category in Best Actress, which is always very good. I always like the years where Best Actress has a lot of big contenders. It's never a weak year for Best Actress, but this is a very um, front-loaded year for Best Actress, particularly. Um, And I I think think if there's anything that's going for her, it's that... We'll see what happens when critics' prizes come, because I feel like somebody could be stumping for her. But I think the best selling point for her is the same thing that it was before, that it's just the performance that the actor is really going for it. Um, I, I agree with you that she's in a really way that going doesn't, for it. Yeah. Um, I disagree a little bit in that I think sometimes we look to the critics' prizes to be more spread out than they are. I think the critics' prizes right. tend to latch on one person and just ride them the whole way. And I don't I don't think that's going to be Tony Collette. I think that will She's probably be... a hard person be... to, like, rouse consensus around. Right. I think that person will probably be... Actually, though, I don't know who that person will be this year. I almost wanted to say Olivia Coleman, but if they don't campaign her in lead, then maybe not. But Critics could know. still do what they want to do and put her in lead. They could. Anyway. This is a good episode, Chris. We got a lot. We, got, we talked about a lot. We talked we really about a lot. We gamut. put in some Halloween fun. Happy um, Halloween, listeners. We love you guys. Yeah. Mention Talk to, to us, us on Twitter. We have fun with you guys when you when you get back to us on Twitter. 
Tell and us now what talk your to us on Letterboxd. Movie costume would be. Yes, exactly. All right, that's our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account, as I mentioned, at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? Uh, you can find me every week on The Film Experience. That's thefilmexperience.net, talking about soundtracks, Oscar, um, other fun things. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. Please also find me on Letterboxd, as we mentioned. It's same name on there, Chris V. File. I also have a running list on my profile. That's all of the movies we've covered with links to individual episodes, IMDb game scores, if you're keeping track of that. It's really and a feel- cool list. You guys should check it out. Feel free to comment on there about favorite episodes, movies you want to see us cover. Yes. Excellent. I am also on Twitter. I'm at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. Letterboxd, same thing, Joe Reed. And you can also find me each and every day at Decider.com, talking TV and movies and everything that is on streaming. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, rate, and review us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with iTunes visibility. And unless you've recently had your brain pan-fried in front of you, you know that visibility on iTunes is very important. That is all for this week, but we hope you will be back next week for more buzz. Goodbye, Clarice. There it is. Everyone's a winner.